Welcome to episode 109. Today, Dr. Melissa Canman Taylor joins us to talk about her book called Enlivening Instruction with Drama and Improv, a guide for second language and world language teachers. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Cloud has... I have seen the wonders of what drama teachers can do with their multilingual students. When I worked in Laos, I made it a point to see students' performances as much as possible, and I still do that today. Every time I go to the performances, I get to see some of my students blossom and open up in ways that they did not while in my class. You don't have to be a drama teacher to add elements of drama into your instruction with MLs. In this highly entertaining conversation, Dr. Melissa Canman taylor shows us how. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so excited to have Dr. Melissa Kahneman to the podcast. I learned about you with your work uh, with another doctor who, another uh, person in the field who talked about uh, pushing and pushing against pushing. Right? And then as we were talking, I realized that you use dramat dramatization in your work a lot. And I thought, oh, I always think about the language learners, the multilinguals in my class who don't speak at all. And mm. then when they go to drama classes and at the end of the unit, or end of the semester, the drama teacher invites us all to come watch and then they're speaking and then they're performing. And then I'm like, wow, what did I do wrong? Right? <laughs> so I'm so, and when you said, hey, I have a book, it's about dramatization and language development. I said, you had me there. Come on the podcast. Let's talk about it. So, uh, Dr. Melissa Cadman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here, and I'm I'm so happy you you witnessed firsthand the joy and pleasure of drama and language education. And it's such a pleasure for them too. There are no worksheets. Yeah. There is no boring drills, but yet they come out with this this authentic, rich language, even though it's scripted for them they really blossom. And I'm like, wow, how do you do this? Anyways, mm -hmm. well, can you introduce yourself in and let me ask you this question. What is something that you are extremely proud of in your profession? Well, I'm feeling very proud right now <laughs> to be invited to speak with you. Um, I'm so proud when my work has an impact. And I would say there, there are so many moments of great joy but listening to um, what was important to me, which was has always been the integration of the arts with education. You know, maybe I'll step back. When I was a first teacher, I arrived in South Central Los Angeles in 1992 and things were really tense. Uh, we had just had um, a brutal uh, occurrence of 
uh, violence against uh, recorded violence against an African American man, Rodney King, yes. and it was, you know, the maybe the beginnings of being able to see when abuses of power were happening in our community, and it really shook the school that I was working at. I was a bilingual teacher, and um, we were a program with Latino and African American students. And I remember teaching the kids to perform uh, a song um, for their classmates for the whole school. And it was a rap song. And I remember it was through the music that the kids felt uh, heard and that they could express and share both their joy and their grief, their anger and their outrage and their um, uh, creative potential for change. It was a it was a moving moment, and I thought, you know what, we need more of this in education. We need to somehow the standards for art yes. were marginalized, but when they became the center of my literacy curriculum, there was so much investment. So so many proud moments since then. I I've carried that into teacher education. When I first came to the University of Georgia, I was um, convinced that dual language education was the absolute best way to go. And I observed those programs in various cities in California and Colorado and Florida and Washington DC and I'd read about them. And when I came to Georgia, there was no bilingual education at all, not transitional bilingual education, early exit, late exit, nothing. It was ESOL at best. And even that was limited. And one of my first students took my bilingualism course and said, well, there's no bilingual school, I'm going to start it. And she, Del Perry Giles, uh, she started the first dual language school in the state of Georgia. Uh, it was called Unidos and it was near the Atlanta airport and she could find only the district that was under the most duress uh, at risk of closure would take her school. You know, she looked far and wide she opened that school and then she was in the midst of doing her dissertation work and she said to me, Misha, I can't write my dissertation. I just, I have to focus on this school. And I said, you have to write a dissertation. Yeah, this is too important. Let's look to creative ways so that you can write it fluidly and from the heart. It doesn't have to be this burdensome piece of scholarship. So we looked to her, her, at her theory was John Dewey and she creatively imagined if John Dewey were alive, what he might say based on what he had said, what ideas he might have about bilingual education. It would turn into a wonderful piece, very personal piece. Uh, and I was very proud of her for opening that school, the first, which now there are dozens and dozens of dual language schools based on that model. And the only wish I have is that she would write that darn book out of her dissertation, but we're still pushing for that. <laughs> Alicia, so think, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, you you had said something earlier on about the arts and how fun it is, and it is fun. But I always worry that people forget there's also deep rigor. There is. You know that the arts just enable us to push through that rigor, to to persist, to do the hard work, uh, to acquire the language and the theory that we need. To, to because we want to because of the the joy makes it less of a burden helps us all sing so that's that's how ironically sing. We were earlier talking about uh, Dr. Stephen Krashen and how he talks about comprehensible input and he talks about 
comprehensible input has to be fun, right? And I know he doesn't really talk about comprehensible output, and dramatization is all about output as well. And you make that really fun for kids, right? And I've mm. seen drama teachers or the schools that I've worked at just have done miracle work with kids who are reluctant speakers or who are that the effective filter is really high, but some reason that effective filter has been lowered. Right? Mm. It's so mm. impressive. Oh yeah, and and the other thing is, you know, it's it they are able to produce the output also because of skillful, structured, cho limited choices. So you can do so much with the word yes and no. You know, there's so much you can perform. In fact, that's one of the drama exercises in our in our new book, and I'll just flash it up here because I'm so proud of it. Enlivening instruction with drama and improv: a guide for second language and world language teachers um just having a group circle the many ways you can say yes would you if you just did one that's right yes or like yes 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 <laughs> <laughs> or no 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 no, 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 no. So many, so many things we communicate. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that was a naughty no. <laughs> <laughs> that was a yes, no. <laughs> that was fun. Um, would you walk us back and talk about uh, the your student who opened up the bilingual school? What did she learn about that? Because I know I love how we're meandering through this conversation. Where we'll go back to dramatization, but I think bilingualism is so important. Would you talk about that in her school? Yeah, sure. Um, she learned it's a hard battle to to open up a school in a in an, in a context you know in a United States of America context where bilingualism is often seen as a threat or a, um, a transitional period toward English only. American loyalty. Um, this is, you know, there is, there are some who who have great distrust of bilinguals that somehow um, it shows you're not a true national. Now, as multilingual people that we are, we know how silly that is. Um, but but there are many people in th in this country and in that this state that have uh, are worried. And so it was interesting that she started that school in the aftermath of the pushback against bilingual education in California, which is one of the most thoroughly, you know, multilingual, bilingual, Spanish is such a strong historic presence in California. But, um, you know, there was a whole campaign with Ron Unz and Proposition 227 to, uh, to do away with bilingual education and they virtually did. They made it very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we were just starting, you know, Dell with my support was just starting bilingual education in Georgia where I think those, um, the threat hadn't been perceived yet. So there was a lot of open arms, a lot of, um, a, a lot of the, the good opportunity was seen like, wow, my kids can learn another language much better than I could. So it was relatively welcomed once she got things started, which is why it has taken off so strongly. So after she began that school in Atlanta, another one of my students who was then a master student 
went to her school, was also impressed and wowed and started the second bilingual school uh, in a much more rural area in Gainesville and Hull County, Georgia, and that's called the World Language Academy. That school was a stupendous success because it had the thorough support of the uh, school district superintendent who had sent his own children, as I understand it, to dual language. It was very familiar with it, had moved from another county to become the superintendent. So she had support all the way up and all the way down. And that uh, school took off and is still in still going today and and it's going into middle and high school now so kids are getting dual language th thorough bilingual um schooling opportunities all the way through and it's been wonderful that first school that dell opened has struggled um the school and the district has struggled and it became uh i think just too much for her to keep uh doing and she had uh, become a parent and is now very happy working in a school district in Texas. So I think you know we need we need networks of support, and that's one thing I talk about in the book. And what's a, another wonderful asset of theater is that idea of the ensemble. That if you're going to fight the bilingual battle, you can't do it alone. You know, everybody needs an ensemble, a cast, a crew, a stage set. You know, someone who's in charge of props and tickets at the door. You know, we need it all. This is not a solo activity. I always, I love talking to teachers and I love supporting districts, but the, the audience that I love the most is talking to uh, principals and district leaders and superintendents because one decision that they make can really impact the entire school and the entire school mm -hmm. district, right? Mm -hmm. So we need both the grassroots, but also uh, from the top as well. And so you speak about that um, ensemble. I love that. and. I usually call it um, an ecosystem that supports uh, language learners, multilinguals. But I also like the ensemble idea. Mm. Would you, uh, don't worry about the dog, it's not a problem. Okay, I'm like, oh my God. Just like stop it. What kind of dog is it? It's a beagle mix. It's a rescue dog and we got him during the pandemic. And so we're in love but he's fiercely loyal and protecting our house from strangers right now who are coming in. <laughs> Amazon people, yes. Amazon uh, deliverers, yes. Yes. <laughs> Beagles yeah. are great. They're so naughty, aren't they? I have a beagle as well. Oh. <laughs> okay, let's go back. Um, you talked about how, I know that in a lot of schools right now, they are taking their kids away from art classes and PE classes, they're multilinguals. Like, and I know you're frowning right now. Can you tell about us about like globally, why should schools uh, fight and advocate for the arts to stay in the, the experience for multilinguals? Oh my gosh, well, don't get me started. Um, yeah, I think it's such a weird, misconception that the arts are like an extra, you know, that's the fun thing to do later when, um, you know, the arts matter for so many reasons in and of themselves. They're not just handmaidens to content. Like a lot of people mistake uh, the arts as like, oh, that's that fun thing you do at the end of the literacy unit, they will draw or um, you know, after we've read the novel, then let's see the movie or something like that, as opposed to the arts in and of themselves changing, shifting what we 
how we think, how we perceive the qualities of humanness and non-humanness around us. So if we, I mean, I often will say I'm terrible at drawing, which is true and not true. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not particularly skilled at it because I don't do it all the time, but I picked up this, uh, a wonderful guide and I've just been making myself draw because I don't believe we should fix ourselves in good. You're either good at the arts or you're, you shouldn't touch them. And I was saying the same thing with athletics. It's like we teach each other. You're either an athlete and you should play your team sport at your school, or you should, uh, take a back seat, but you know, a lot, mo most people don't have an issue with playing basketball outside on the courtyard at the school, at the park or their house or their, with their neighbor kicking around a ball. We all do this. So I have a, a tree stump outside my house that I painted on the top and I put the word stage. Maybe I'll send you the picture because I want every, the kids walk by and they jump up. They know, they knew it was a stage before I called a stage, but I want the grownups also to know that when you have something to say, you just need to imagine that you can have a stage. That does not mean not preparing. Yes. I don't wanna see uh, flimsy art. I also don't wanna watch people playing bad basketball. You know, it's fun to play it. I'm, I'm gonna play some terrible ultimate Frisbee today, but I don't expect anyone to wanna watch me until I'm really trained and good at it. But I also don't think we should take away the opportunity because people aren't trained. Now that said, teachers are not trained to feel confident, to teach the arts. And so it self-perpetuates. So we need opportunities for teacher development. We need to have rich opportunities that, that talk about the emergence of an artistic identity and that there are different ways to be players. You know, I would have loved to be in uh, Susan Sarandon. Like I have an inner actress. I, I, I missed that, but I, I, there's a place for me in my, you know, theater existence and talent to share the joy. I don't have to be Susan. She's, we got a Susan. We have an Angelina Jolie. We have these beautiful, wonderful women actresses. I'm now smitten with a new actress whose name I don't know, but she's on this a show called Hex, and I'm just enjoying it so much. Um, and The Watchmen, oh my God, it's so much good television. It's so good. the pandemic, my God. But I can't wait to see live theater. And I love to see non-actors acting and enjoying it for the first time. So why do we rob kids of that? We think, oh, they have to wait until they're more literate. They have to do the hard grueling work of acquiring the basic basics of, a, of all the disciplines before they can get the little joy of, um, you know, painting a portrait or uh, standing on a stage and um, reciting a poem. I say you start with that joy and, you know, give access to the art. So, yeah. I love what you said and I wrote down, arts help us see in so many different ways. And when you said that, I just thought about Dr. Rudine's Sims Bishop, and she talked about how books are like mirrors and windows and sliding glass doors. And I was like, yes, this is why we have kids see, we, we participate in art because then they see another world, they participate mm -hmm. in another world. Uh, they get to see themselves in a different way. And so art does yeah. that in so many ways. And their own creative potential, their own agency that they, everybody is an artist, which means everybody can create something we, that doesn't exist yet. 
that's what's so important is creating new understandings of what is possible. We're born into scripts, we're born into body scripts, we're born into the costumes of our skin tones and our, um, you know, the circumstances of our lives. But if we can act, if we can learn that we can become someone else on a stage, then maybe we can become someone else on the stage of life. And this is Irving Goffman's ideas. Yeah. yeah. That's what they said. They, uh, this is why we, the, the literacy experts out there, they always say, have kids read books because they're practicing for real life with books. And so yeah. they're, it's the same way the kids are practicing for real life. They become a different avatar. They live their avatar in real life because they get to practice that in drama. Right. Yeah. And so I would add, if you replace the word practicing with rehearsal or rehearsing, you know, this is where drama is such a, a wonderful um, metaphorical resource too. So we, we, we think sometimes we think rehearsals make a false, like, oh, you're pretending, you're, you're, you're wannabe, you're, you're not your authentic self. Well, none of us are our authentic selves. We're rehearsing ourselves every minute, every moment of the day. So we need to give many opportunities through literature, through performance, through song and dance to, to stretch the body and the mind's potential. Let's move towards a little, let's uh, narrow the conversation a little bit. Let's talk about why drama and language development in particular. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so many have said it, so, you know, you mentioned, I'm not sure if you mentioned it here before we started the talk about Stephen Krashen and yes. comprehensible input. I mean, he's a master of performance. Um, and, and the idea that we need to rehearse communicative competence, that it doesn't just happen, but we have natural discursive turn-taking that is acquired over a speaker's lifetime. And so if you're gonna enter a new communicative system, you, you do need to understand what kinds of scripts tend to happen. And then you need to rehearse fluency, you know, proficiency and, and understanding things by a standard basis is one thing, but to, to be able to speak in a moment of improvised necessity takes time you could because otherwise i'm sure you've been there as a multilingual when you become mute i'll never forget you know I, everyone says oh you're so fluent in spanish i do speak spanish fluently but when my when i missed my flight in mexico city and i'm in the airport all of a sudden everything i knew about spanish out the window i just wanted to speak in english because i was so stressed you know right so all of schooling is filled with anxiety producing experiences of the test taking and um, you know, will you pass and speaking to people in more formal registers and speaking to people who have gatekeeping roles in your life. I mean, this is like thorough ongoing anxiety. The actor learns how to cope with that and thrive with that anxiety, that, that anxiety to name it you know, we often talk about being um, having stage fright to identify it. This is something that happens. Stage fright happens in every interactional moment, potentially. But somehow we need to rehearse the muscle to get through it right. and to be able to have studied enough to have a bank of knowledge that then we can improvise, improvise and draw upon it in an embodied moment to moment way. And that comes with practice in a safe place with an ensemble of caring peer learners and teacher. Um, so, you know, I feel that language learning, uh, one of the many limitations of classroom learning is 
the restricted um, kinds of conversations we can have. But as an actor, if you set up a scene, you can be anywhere. You can uh, the class can imagine using language at that airport. Using you know, we can really believe uh, that we are in that moment and rehearse it over and over with a group. So, I love what you said about giving kids a safe place to rehearse because once mm -hmm. they have that confidence, really, it's a lot about many multilinguals are are not speaking in their content classes because they feel uncomfortable, but they are speaking and they're performing because it's a really safe, structured place. Uh, for them to speak and perform in, in drama classes because they're mm -hmm. getting to rehearse then and then their confidence comes out and then they're applying it to the content classes where it's more improvisational than drama yeah. classes, right? Yeah, yeah. If you're in math class and you're, you don't, if you've, if you, if the math teacher encourages you to have a performance of, you know, take, play the role of the math teacher right now, what fun. You could imagine the kinds of language the kids are going to uh, recall and become, you know, ventriloquists, but with their own spin on it for what their math teacher has been saying all along. So I just think we need to give students more opportunities to play those roles of expert, you know, and, and we and that's a really fun game, um, expert interview. I don't know if you've seen this on stage, but it's just a delight. And so you're, you'll ask your audience or your classroom and say, you know, what could this actor be an expert in? And you can give any subject and it's so fun. Be an expert in art history. And so then you set up two student actors to be one, the expert. They may know nothing about art history. And then the interviewee. Now you could give the assignment, go quickly, take a day and learn all the words that could go with art history. Right. Or you just have it on the moment and see what they imagine right. Right. could be uh, what an expert might say. I'm thinking as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about my own class, grade eight. We're doing we, we finished the unit on uh, uh, explorers and, and, and colonists. And I could have easily had my kids uh, as a formative assessment, um, have them pretend that they are their explorer or their colonists mm -hmm. and then have the audience interview them. And they're going in and embodying that person. They're saying, yes, we came. We didn't we didn't. We colonize. We purposely colonized. We purposely conquered because we wanted gold. And because I came from a poor place in Spain and I didn't have land. So now I have a lot of land in Mexico. Now I'm a noble knight. Right. And so look all the language that the person is using. Look how rigorous it is because they have to use the, the content. Right. That's right. Absolutely. And you could have a rubric that lets the students know in advance, you know, that you'll be looking for some key words or, you know, um, maybe helpful to, to record, but you know, it depends. Assessment can kind of sometimes get in the way of the greatest joyful um, productivity. So you have to be, I know a lot of teachers are worried about, well, how can I make sure they're, they're getting the, how do I assess? How do I assess? Because there's so much pressure on teachers to assess. So I think it's, uh, I just want to give an, an, a, a nod to the voice of assessment and also how valuable it would be to do that as a pre-assessment activity so that they've rehearsed it without the Depression. anxiety right. of the grade right? and we, then have them write it up. Yeah. We talked about um, your, your two words that embody who you are is professional and fun. Yeah. And that you're really speaking <laughs> about that. <laughs> yeah. Make it, make it rigorous, but make it a pleasure. I don't right. see why those have to be 
uh, incongruous. They they should go hand in hand. Not always. Sometimes things are hard. Yes. <laughs> can we talk about that? Like, what are some strategies that teachers can use? Because there there's drama class that kids go to, but there we're trying to. The purpose of this conversation is try to help. Uh, language specialists and content teachers add a little drama, a little bit arts into their class because it helps with critical thinking and language development and, and mm -hmm. content acquisition. So would you talk about what are some strategies that teachers can do if they're not a drama teacher? Mm -hmm. Well, they should get thee to an improv theater company if they can. I know I miss, I'm from Chicago where you can turn every corner and there's an improv uh, troupe. <laughs> Maybe in Philadelphia too. I'm not sure. I can't, I know there's a lot of theater going on in Philly, but I don't know about improv comedy. I'm sure there is in New York City. I mean, but where I am in Georgia, now we have more improv troops happening in my town as well. It's not always convenient to attend, but I would say, you know, one thing I would say for teachers that are truly interested is just try it. Find a place to try it. Now with Zoom, the pandemic has exploded opportunities where you can participate in wonderful drama classes online. I've taught tons of drama in these little squares. I, I'd say, this is my, my stage. And I say, you know, I'll, I'll say, find an object on your desk and introduce yourself as that object. Because a lot of the students are afraid to be on Zoom with their cameras. This has been a problem in the United States. So they'll, they'll grab an object. This happens to be a coaster that I have. And they'll say, hi, my name is Misha. And I'm feeling a little hungry right now because I didn't have breakfast. I was quite nervous about this interview, but it's very nice to be here. And I'm looking forward to eating later. Bye. And so this is just, you know, what, can, what fun. Anything around you can become a prop. And, and it's just a delight to invite the, those invitations. And so what I'm saying is teachers can learn very quickly some strategies. We've written up a ton in this book. It's, you know, hundreds of different games. When I can, and now with Zoom teaching, I've been able to record a bit more. I do record um, when I'm playing as much as I can, because I know that reading about it is one thing, Seeing it in action is much more helpful, I think. And then third is playing. You know, if you have a chance to do the game as a participant, then you're even more aware of how to, how it runs and, you know, what, what mistakes can be made or, you know, and what joys come. And then fourth is teaching it yourself. So I say to teachers, don't be afraid to start with number four because that's the most learning. Read about the, you know, get an understanding of a game and try it out and be prepared to fail. And that is one of the most essential, wonderful tips and tricks that arts teach you. You must fail. Yes. You, if you, you're not an artist, if you haven't failed over and over and over terribly. Um, and this is a wonderful, you know, skill for lifelong living is how to fall down and come back. So teachers do this all the time, but I would say, you know, those are some of the ways to learn is, you know, read about it. By all means, our book, we kept it a very low cost. Find the videos to supplement the reading so that you get a sense of how it's played. Uh, try to take some workshops to play the games yourself. I go all the time if I'm invited, I'll be happy to run, you know, to demo some games on Zoom or, or live in person, hopefully. And then just try it. Yeah. 
let's talk about then your the highlighting of your book then, uh, because you spent some time writing it, extensive, a lot of amount of time, lots of work, lots of ideas. Uh, can you run through the uh, just the title of the chapters and then just talk about a few of the chapters as a as a way of framing the conversation? Yeah, and I'll give a shout out to my co-author Kathleen McGovern. Uh, she joined our PhD program several years ago, and I was so excited because she's many things, including a wonderful actress herself with a lot of theater experience. And it's um, she just finished her PhD this last year, and it was so fun to work with her. So I always love to work on things with an ensemble, even an ensemble of two, and we've had a lot of joy. So um, the chapters, first we have an introduction, why why and who should read this book um, and what, I, what we mean by creating a classroom ensemble. And we put in the book a bunch of icons that help teachers quickly see, is this more of a literacy, a content activity? Is this writing? Is this speaking? Is it listening? Um, you know, to help, especially if you have to write those down and turn them into an administrator to give some ideas for the language for why you're doing such a fun activity in the classroom that it actually has some benefits for traditional academic learning as well. Um, and we talk about assessment and we call that access to profound joy. So you can see that I'm always, I don't think there are many times in writing that you'll see assessment, access to profound joy together. So <laughs> that should be an invitation. What on earth are they mean? So then we go through drama basics um, and how to scaffold success through drama in the language classroom. And I have a note on props and costumes and sets. And you saw a demonstration of one of those easy props. Um, and of course we address people's questions. A lot of people are very nervous. You know, well, I can't do drama, you know, a lot of naysaying. And we try to take that on head on. And also with recognizing students have varying abilities and um, you know, there are shy students. There are students who just will not participate how to, how to allow different kinds of roles within a drama-based classroom. Mm. And then we go through the history, theory, and practice of critical uh, second language uh, drama education and language teacher artistry. And then uh, we begin with the games. So that, so that was chapters uh, introduction, chapter one. Chapter two is sort of setting the stage for why and how and how to ground yourself you know, theoretically and the ideas of Mikhail Bakhtin and um, awakening the spirit of carnival, of becoming your own agentive self. And then we go right into games that are wonderful for the first day of class that you can recycle throughout the class, like getting to know you types of, this is how to start, easy ways to start and some of our favorites. And then we go into warming up with little to no language. So like I said earlier, yes, no can become a whole drama game. You know, how to, how to give students the opportunities to perform in their L2, even if they have very little language, but how to make that accessible and inviting. And then we have Say It Again, Sam, rehearsing target language words and phrases. So, you know, rehearsing things that one will say over and over, you know, important segments, chunks of language, then guessing games, which are loads of fun when some, you know, like charades, we all know charades, but variations on charades where the audience is in on the joke, or is also along for the ride of guessing what's going on. And it's, they're just so highly motivating. And 
Then we have uh, more for more advanced learners improvising in chapter seven with shorter stretches of language, improvising in chapter eight with longer stretches of language. So that requires a bit more um, fluency, proficiency. And then the last chapter might be my favorite is chapter nine, theater for agency, activism and acting up with language. So, you know, what it means to be able to be agentive with one word, with many words, and how to play some of the same games we have in chapters three through eight, but with social justice in mind. Wow, it's really, a, what a lovely book. I, you really start off with talking about the foundation, the theory, the theory behind it, and then chapters three to eight are, are just the games, right? But they're, they're, you've taken us from like beginners Right, all the way to more advanced students. Right? And then you talk about like, but we don't learn this just to engage in school. We do this for activism, right? We yeah. do this for agency. And I was like, yes, yeah. that's really great. Oh, I forgot to say we have two appendices because we do it for agency, but we also have jobs to keep. <laughs> so we do have an appendix with a lesson plan template, you know, how to write this up. Uh, how to keep in mind what you need to have on hand from anywhere from preparation of materials to um, a standard that you're addressing in your curriculum. And then we have a second appendix, which is how to teach using drama on Zoom, uh, not just Zoom, but any uh, online platform. So things that we've learned, so many language teachers are, even before the pandemic, are teaching languages internationally. In your book, we have about 20 minutes left. Where would you like to, to highlight the chapters in your book so we can talk about them? Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, that, that chapter nine is really important to me. And I think I try to gentle the reader in to thinking. I don't want, I don't, I never want art to be about moralizing or political certainty or, you know, uh, it, it's not necessarily with an activist agenda so much as it is with a um i guess an agenda for the human spirit yes. i want us all to be i'm really obsessed right now i've been you you would ask the middle east is driving me crazy i wish that i could perform uh i wish that i could have drama workshops across jerusalem and east jerusalem and palestine and i had the pleasure of having the most wonderful student from Palestine in my drama L2 drama class this last semester. And we've decided that if we could just take our show on the road, we would, we could help things over there. But this came out of, I did, I have, I was a guest speaker at the English Teachers Association of Israel a couple of years ago. And so I did get to go and the invitation of the U.S. Embassy it was very powerful and one of my duties there was to speak to teachers in a relatively um, not new, but a, a program, a diplomacy school program that purposely selected youth from Jewish populations, Arab, Israeli populations, and Palestinian populations all in the same school. And it was called the diplomacy program. They're learning English. And I was there to teach a poetry workshop. So I get there. It was really nice. And they say, Misha, you have, my nickname is Misha, by the way. So uh, even though Melissa is my name, people call me Misha. Misha, you have to wait to do the workshop because they have an urgent need for, the administrator has to come and speak to the teachers. Well, I had no idea 
that the talk was going to tell them that the funding for their program, their English program was cut no. and many people would be losing positions. This is right before I'm supposed to do a workshop with these teachers in Israel. Oh my God, pandemonium. Israeli Arabs, Jews and Palestinians are very dramatic people. And when they're angry, that you know it. So there was no way I was gonna do a poetry workshop. It just wasn't the mood. So I went through quickly my improvisational mind. I was like, what game could we play? And I have a game in the book called, Do You Like Your Neighbor? Oh, oh. Very fun. You know this game? No, but I can see how it can work with the uh, with Palestinian-Israeli conflict right now. Oh my God. So it's just a lovely, fun, it's a warm-up game. It's a, ga a classic theater game that is often played in, in drama schools, but we turned it into something else. You know, we, we really just, we played together to release some of the stress uh, that they were experiencing. The game is a circle of, you sit in a circle um, and you stand up and ask somebody in the circle, do you like their neighbor? And the answer is either yes or no. And if it's no, then the two people have to change chairs that are the neighbors. And the person in the middle tries to get one of the chairs. So it's like a, you know, role-playing game. game. Yeah. Yes, uh, yeah. And then the answer yes is yes, but I don't like people who wear dangly earrings. So everybody who perceives that they're wearing dangly earrings has to stand up from their chair and find another place to sit. And that's another opportunity for the person in the middle to, to find a new chair. Anyway, it changed everybody's mood and we were able to talk about what it means to be a good neighbor, what it, you know, what it means to communicate through tension and struggle with humor and play. And it just was transformative. So I think that if we can get to those spaces of play and humor, we can start to understand and care about each other a little bit more. And maybe that's part of the tick to changing this darn conflict in the world. I don't know, maybe it's just naive. I'm sure it is. No, it's good hope. Right? It's, it's <laughs> getting people to see that there is humanity in their enemy changes things, right? And Beautiful. humanity happens yeah. through laughing, right? It's, it's it's like the first door conversation. Let's just laugh and smile mm. and joke around, and then let's have a real conversation, right? Now that you mm -hmm. know me as a person, now that we just laugh together, like, what's really going on? Is this really worth it fighting like this way, right? Yeah. So you can play that game in any classroom anywhere, but like. If you add the layer of that kind of messaging, that if we can play and laugh together, maybe we can love and learn to live with each other. We don't have to love each other. Maybe right. we just learn to live with each other. Uh, that would be a real accomplishment. Right. You're really saying uh, you're integrating SEL within the instruction. So I see multiple layers. I see language development. I see content, but also I also see SEL at the end. Right. Um, what is that? You said SEL. Yeah, social emotional learning. Oh, yeah, so you're already adding that. You're, you're adding, you're intentionally teaching kids, not just the content, but you're t intentionally teaching kids how to deal with their emotions and experiences and how to self-monitor. Right? Yeah, and then we'll put a circle around all of that, which is consciousness yes. and, and agency, that like we are all always acting within larger social structures that uh, limit what we think we can say and do, and that we have the potential to break through those limits, at least on the micro interactional level. And sometimes we can do it on a larger macro institutional level. And it starts with kids, because kids own the future. Yeah.
Yeah. Can you tell us about a few or three more, a few more games? But before we go a few more games, can I talk about the, the, the so that, that, do I like your neighbor? Someone's in the middle, everyone's in the circle. And mm-hmm. someone says, uh, do you like your neighbor? And if they say no, you move, right? The two and, people on either side, the two yes. neighbors have to change chairs. Yes. With the race for the person in the middle to get, yes. grab one of those chairs. Right. And then when, when does the dangly earring part come in? Like the... So then if you say, do you like your neighbor? And the answer, instead of being no, is yes, then you can't say yes. You have to say, but. Yes, but I don't like people who speak many languages. And then every, or speak more than one language. And then everybody who meets that criteria, they decide for themselves. We never say you can't make someone move. It's fun. People enjoy, they're waiting on the edge of their seats. Kids are like, what are they going to say? What are they going to say? And if you're with language learners, you can make it really limited to like items of clothing. You can have all the words on the board to help the kids access what they need to know. So they play within the limits of their vocabularies. It's much more, it's expansive and terrific if you, you, they can use all their language resources and just have fun. But you know, I don't like people with brown hair or dark hair. I don't like people who, yes, but I don't like people who have backgrounds of kitchens in their Zoom screen. Oh my God, ah! you know, that I would be seated, you would be getting up. Yes. I don't like people, yes, but I don't like people wearing colored shirts. That would be you. Good. <laughs> And it's just fun. It is. It's, a, it's very similar to the big wind blows. I've heard that game. Before. Yes, 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 yes. Can you share a few so, more games with us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So another one I always play, I just, well, I don't know where to back up. Here, I'll just start with this one. So I'll take any object. Usually I'll have um, uh, a cloth, a plain white piece of fabric that I take with me, but it can, this is my, I'm um, getting ready for the 4th of July in the United States. So it's, uh, this is my scarf, but I, the game I call it is this is my blanket. So whatever it is, whatever the object is that you start with, it can be in, when I play it on zoom, I do, I have everybody get a pen. Do you have a pen or pencil with you? I do. Okay. What is that? That's a pen. Okay. So I'm going to try to match your kind of pen. Let's see. Do you have any other, you have a pencil by any chance or just a pen? Uh, just a pen, but we can pretend. This okay. Is well, this we, this is similar enough. Oh, we yeah. both have pen. Yeah. Okay. So this is my pen. Well, you're going to actually, if you would say this is my pen and hand it to me on the zoom screen, then I'll dem- demonstrate and um, we'll play it. And I'm going to say that was your pen, but this is my, and I'm going to change it. Okay. This and is my I'm pen. Gonna take, yes. Okay. Okay. This, this is, is my your pen. pen. Yeah. Okay, so now I'm going to take your pen from you and you put yours down out of the screen so it looks like I'm taking it. Oh, thank you, Tan. So now I have your pen, but I'm going to change it uh, and I'm going to say this was your pen, but it's my baby snail. It's my baby snail. So then I'm going to give it to you and you're going to pick up your, you're going to pretend like I'm handing you my baby snail. And you need to say, this was your baby snail and you need to do what I'm doing. So you need to look at my action, say, this was your baby snail. So I'm going to give it to you. This is my baby snail. Yeah. Well, thank you. This was your baby snail. Yeah. Now, this is my uh, squiggly little snake. Oh, squiggly little snake. Oh, can I have it? Yes. Oh, here, take it. Oh, thank you. Oh, this was your squiggly little snake. 
but now it's my mini refrigerator with my breakfast in it. <laughs> Do you see how it goes? So, I mean, it can be anything. <laughs> so cute. You definitely have <laughs> You have a, you have a, the, the actress came out of you, right? I love that. Mm. I yeah. And it's great. Quick. Well, I was just going to say, you know, every language learner, when you don't have a word, you're always miming it, right? You're always using gestures. I remember being in France and I needed, I know Spanish. So I know that the yeah. Spanish word for nap is servieta. And I didn't know what it was in France. And I was really tired of getting things wrong, applying Spanish to French. So I just said, I need, I need. You know this, and when she said serviette, I could have died because I was like, I could have got that one. Because it's a, it's a, it's a cognate. <laughs> yes, but I was so tired of getting false cognates all the time. I thought, oh, I just just gonna perform this one out. So you know, gestures are really like being able to physically mime things is right. really useful as a language learner. Right, right. Because this is the output part. Like I can say, I remember teaching a, a, a Chinese student, and he was. He was just a beginner in Chinese and we we're teaching him balance and unbalance in science class, right? Because he had to go do an experiment. And I said, okay, come here, Zhang Hong, Google Translate, open it up. I typed, I typed the word balance in and I showed him this is balance in Chinese. He looked at the screen and said, balance, I got it. And then I typed wow. the word uh, unbalance. And then I said, here are my hands. Now this is unbalanced, but this is also unbalanced and this is balance. And then I, had, I put out my hands and I said, can you show me unbalanced? And he pushed one of my hands down and the other one went up. And I was like, yes. And so that that's what's an easy way to have kids comprehend, but also to understand. And then he immediately, once we finished, we walked to the science station and he applied his understanding of balance and unbalance. Fantastic. And what fun would that be to play with the whole group? You know, show me with one leg balance and unbalance. I mean, you know, show me with however it would be. Yes. Terrific. And then they'll never forget that concept again. Right. You know, so I, I was thinking when you're talking about concepts, like th there are concepts that are really hard, like systems. In my grade six, I was teaching them like systems, ecosystems, they work together, things are in balance and unbalanced. And at the end of the unit, I wanted them to do something that was fun to spend the day. And I had them do TikTok dances. You know how they have like these random TikTok dances? And I yeah. said, okay. Uh, I should, I'm, I'm going to do this in the beginning of the year next year. I'll say, I want you to create a TikTok dance that's 30 seconds with your partner to show me balance at the beginning, imbalance, and then come back to balance. Oh, best. Yes. You're a natural. Oh. Yes, that's fantastic. That's so, so about, terrific. Great. So and many kids, ways. Wait, because I could have, I mean, I struggled to show them what, what a system is. Because conceptually, that was hard for them, right? But then mm -hmm. when I had them do like, hey, TikTok. The kids who struggled academically outperformed everyone else right? mm, because they because exactly. they have that like they're, they're I guess dramatization provides a differentiated way for kids to be successful. Yeah. Right. And you knew to pick a technology that is appealing like that's that's where I'm struggling as an older academic where I'm trying to keep up with. You know what is the other one that's like a it's a it's an app Snapchat Snapchat. Yeah. Like, my daughter is so into Snapchat and like, these are things that are just beyond me, but I'm trying memes, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> so can you share with us two more games and then uh, we'll end the podcast? Yeah. So ABC bye or ABC die. Oh. Some people don't like 
to talk about death, but I think death is super fun. And as you know, if you learn Spanish in Mexico, death is everywhere. Kids have a great deal of fun doing death. So, uh, so we'll do that version, but I do want to offer that it can be ABC by as well, which is um, sometimes uh, just as fun and safe, but this game is all, this is for maybe more proficient uh, users of a language. I've done it with very young children um, in who, whose language was English as a first language um, to older uh, second language learners. And you set up a scene, you endow a scene. So one of the tenets of improv is to endow every scene with meaning. Mm. So, and usually an improv troupe will ask the audience, what is our relationship? What is the relationship between these two characters or what are they doing? Where are they in space and time? So if I were to ask you to give an endowment for a scene, uh, tell me something you could do, um, an indoor sport. Uh, what would be an indoor sport would be uh, uh, bowling with a ball with little cans. Right. Perfect. Bowling, bowling. So just bowling. Yes. So we're going to do a scene together, you and I, and we're going to, we don't know who's going to start. I'm going to start us by, you know, and, and we're going to alternate with the first word we say is going to start with the letter A. So um, every, every alternating line of dialogue alternates letters of the alphabet going from A to Z. So, and the, the scene that we are doing is bowling. Yes. Okay. Yes. So we don't know who is going to speak first. I'm going to count down. And then the two of us are going to have a conversation about bowling. And each one of us is going to alternate between letters and the person who messes up. We don't know if we're even going to keep track. Usually you have to do this with at least three people. We're going to try. Then you have to have a death by that letter when when we mess up it's super fun okay. and messing up is when there's too long of a pause or you skip a letter and we we both have to be good teachers and tell each other when that happens okay because it's much more fun if we mess up so hopefully we'll mess up okay in five four three two one scene oh i almost got the eight the strike of eight buddy almost doesn't count in bowling it's get it or don't get it and get off the team. Well, can I find a different team? So technically I will say die because you started with well. You don't, oh, you didn't well. know it, but you started with well, can I get a different team? So, <laughs> okay, so then we, it's seen and we have to die by the letter C. So we're gonna die by cats scratching us, okay? <laughs> Exactly. Ah! <laughs> it's fun. Oh, you should see all age kids love this. And sometimes if they're nervous or shy or lower level in language, I'll have two kids help, you know, maybe a stronger one be behind, you know, giving some ideas. Um, you know, you can, you, it doesn't have to be that you're always alone, but right. they just yeah. love it. Right. Right. Love it, love it, love it. Right. And then they can script it if they want and, right. you know, it's just fun. Right. How would, I can hear teachers saying, well, these are lovely games. Where is the content in this? Like, how can we make this structured for the content part? Because I feel like that's the that's the last thing we have to address. Yeah, yeah. So um, like I said, with so with that game, you could start it, it just basically 
proficiency as the goal yes. and having fun and then have kids work in small groups or individually and script out working on their writing a scene that alternates letters a to z it's just giving a, a small constraint because right. you could say write a scene with two people bowling go yeah. but having that added constraint of that every line has to start with another letter and maybe you have one group the a to to D and another group do E to M or however, um, and then performing for each other. So I think you're practicing fluency, yes. vocabulary. You you can say, uh, do something that builds on a literature unit. So a scene that has to do with a moment in history for social studies um, or a, a concept. You know, I've had a lot of people in the science education world have scenes within the rhizome or the cell and you know, different characterizations of these different parts to understand an abstract system. So there's all kinds of ways in, the, in math, we had um, a kind of charades game with um, geometry shapes, you know, form a cylinder with your bodies, form a square with your bodies. There's just so much room for creativity. And I, I, I think that once you get started, there's no stopping. Right. Uh, and the, the way in which the impact of those activities in terms of ownership of the knowledge is so much stronger than memorizing something for a test or hearing it once, rehearsing it with your friends and having fun is a way it really sticks and you own that information for a lifetime. Ugh. So I, I hear what you're saying as we can add the content to, to any of the strategies or the games that you're sharing in your book. It's lovely. Yeah. Yeah, I think once I think teachers need um, more rehearsal in their own creative abilities to adapt and uh, and make right for their purpose. Like I, I just think we're we've trained teachers, we've scared our, ourselves so much that we have to do what we're told to do. Yes, that we need to learn how to take some of our own creative freedoms back safely which includes, you know, includes lesson planning. So we know ourselves that that's a very important question for every teacher to ask, what does this have to do with learning? You have to ask that question. Because right, right. it'll these. just be an activity. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. So I am so excited to get this book and just share it with other teachers because uh, it can, sometimes lessons can feel dull and this is a way to add liveliness to it, which you're, the title is enlivening your class instruction with drama so it, i love that um, and i think this is going to be an opportunity uh, for us to scaffold but also different instruction for multilinguals in a way that isn't just uh, restrictive right. i hope so i hope so i'd love to hear from anyone who who uses it i, I can't wait to to start hearing feedback it just came out so and i know that you have uh videos uh, embedded into the to the book so people can go and see it right yeah yeah there's links in the book so if you buy the book online you can just touch that link and it opens up the video nice. and they're also written out in the book and i have a youtube channel i have many youtube channels um but if you google my name melissa conman taylor on youtube one of the channels is improv education or improv language education and you'll see the kind of collection that I have going there. Well, I will make sure to tweet it out and also yeah. put it in the show notes. Let's end with um, a metaphor oh, that good. I always uh, end the podcast with. It's uh, called Traffic Light Teaching. Uh, 
So red light, what is something that you will stop doing? Like you recommend the teacher stop doing. Uh, yellow light is what do you mm. ask teachers to start doing? Right. Mm. And then green light is what is something you ask the teachers to continue doing? Mm. Oh my God. Okay. I'm starting with green light. Sure. I want permission. Green light. Love your job and your kids. The joy. Just keep harvesting the joy of having an impact on the world. There's nothing more meaningful than teaching young people to come into themselves and come into the world with hope and knowledge and the ability to keep learning. So just green light, green light. Um, yellow light. Start this is, this is a, not a, it's weird to work backwards because then I think slow down, I guess slow down and start to cultivate your own inner learner again. I think we, we get trapped in teaching of having to know and direct and control. And so start slowing down and co-learning, um, experiencing the joy of something new with your students right. and, and the joy of being unsure that that's something they're experiencing every day. So if you can start with something you're not sure about, which may include theater or poetry or any other, other of, the, of the arts, then it models for the students how they're, you're a lifelong learner. Yeah. yeah. And red light, um, stop beating yourself up and thinking you can't do it. Anyone can do it. Don't think you're going to go to Broadway when it reopens, although I'm hoping to go and sit in one of those beautiful comfy seats and see a play again. But don't um, say I can't because, uh, you know, we, we say in improv theater, it's very important to say yes and, yes. not to say yes but, even though I played a game with yes but, but um, yes and how, what can I do so that I can enjoy this thing that I don't know much about? Yes. yes. And so that's what I would say. It, this has been a pleasure talking to you, Dr. Melissa Kenman Taylor. We are so excited to share, uh, to bring a little bit of magic that is happening in the drama classes into our content and language classes. So thank you for making that happen and being our co-teacher in this experience. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful and look forward to hearing from the audience. Thank you. <laughs> Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. Drama provides a safe, structured opportunity for rehearsal. With this confidence in drama classes, students are more likely to perform in content classes. Dr. Cameron Taylor talks about creating fun opportunities for students to rehearse the language and to apply the content. I wish I had more time to talk about all the games in this book. Luckily, in her book, 
there are videos where we can watch and see how it's actually done. I believe that people are innately creative. Tap into that creativity to provide opportunities for students to express as much as possible. I hope Dr. Kamen Taylor's book provides a safe, structured way for you to enliven the creative spark in your class as well. In the next episode, we return to our friend Anne Benninghoff to talk about specially designed instruction. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.